Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Retired pastor and author Bob Russell told the following account to illustrate how many Christians today often go along with the moral pace that is around us. And that by comparison, people can feel safe since everyone is doing it, therefore they must also be okay. Russell writes, two months ago, my wife and I were visiting our son Rusty and his family. One day, Rusty was test driving a foreign-made car and was frustrated because he couldn't figure out in his head how to change the speedometer reading from kilometers to miles. I think I'm echoing again. That evening, he suggested we take the kids and all go out for ice cream. We need to take two cars, he insisted, so you and Mom just follow me. I followed him and was soon surprised when a policeman raced up behind us with his lights flashing. I couldn't imagine it was us because it didn't feel like I was speeding. And besides, I was going the exact same speed as my son who was in front of me. The officer came up to my window and said, Sir, you were going 58 miles per hour in a 45-mile-per-hour zone, but wait right here. I'm going to deal with the car in front of you, and then I'll be right back. When he went to my son's car, Rusty began stammering, Officer, I know this is going to sound like a line, but this is the first day I've driven this car, and I can't figure out how to change it from kilometers to miles, so I had no idea how fast I was going. Not only that, that guy behind me is my dad, and he doesn't know what he's doing either. Do <laughs> you know what that teaches me? Buy American. <laughs> but other than that, that teaches us that we are all following someone or something, even if we are not thinking about it. And so the opening question I set before us all this morning is, who are you following? That's part of what we're going to be looking at this morning. We have been calling our study in the Gospel of John chapter 6, the discourse of the disappointing Savior. We have called it this because we have seen that very often in the life of Christ, he will do or say things that many people do not want to hear. And so they walk away from the source of not only abundant life down here, but also eternal life in the hereafter. Look at verse 61 with me. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? There are some things in life that I don't understand. For example, I deliver some magazines, and on the cover, half of the magazine is, is devoted to exercise and dieting, and the other half is full of recipes about dessert. Talk about setting yourself up for repeat customers. <laughs> but there's also some things in the Bible that I don't understand. But over the years, I have learned through study or God just illuminating a facet of truth to me. And my understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Christ has been one of those things. The first thing I think we need to address is just the word disciple. Because in the Bible, when we think of a disciple, we think of a serious follower of Christ. 
Now, one of the challenges of translating the Greek into English is that the Greek is a much more expressive language. Take the word love, for example. In English, we just use one word, the word love, and we apply it to everything. We love our family. We love our hobbies. We love Little Debbie Swiss Rolls. Well, I love Little Debbie Swiss Rolls, or at least used to. Of course, once you get in your 50s, your metabolism is such as just walking by the candy aisle, and you'll gain four pounds. But hopefully, we don't love those things with the same fervency and in the same way. The difference is that in the Greek language, they have seven words to describe the word love. They are eros. This describes romantic and passionate love. We get the word erotic from this. The word philea, which is used for intimate and authentic friendship. This is where we get the word Philadelphia, which is called the city of brotherly love. However, Joe Foch, who is a pastor of Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, says a better name is not the city of brotherly love, but the city of brotherly shove. The word ludus describes playful, flirtatious love. The word storge is used of the unconditional love of family. The word, the word felucia describes love of self. The word pragma is the love of committed and compassionate love. And finally, agape is employed when describing the love of God himself. And so it shouldn't surprise us too much that the word disciple carried with it more meanings than what we think. The reason why that is important is that later on in verse 66, we will read this. From that time on, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So people can read that and think, wait a minute. I'm a disciple that loves God, and I'm really trying to obey the scripture in all areas of my life. Does this mean that I, too, can walk away? Well, it is my conviction that no true child of God will ever be lost. We will see that in that passage that I just mentioned, that the word for disciple doesn't always mean what we think it means. Or as it has been said, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. There's a Princess Broad reference for you, so you know that I strive to be relevant and cool. But to avoid any confusion, we will spend a little time this morning exploring that word disciple. We need to realize first that back in the days of the Bible, all kinds of people had disciples. And two of the Greek words that were in common use at that time were the didaskalos, which means teacher, and the methates, which means pupil or disciple. Now, it was impossible for a didaskalos or a teacher to be a teacher unless he had a methates. It was equally impossible to be a methotes or a pupil unless you had a teacher. It was the relationship between pupil and teacher that was the essence of discipleship. I want us to get hold of that basic idea. The essence of discipleship is relationship. Now, the Greeks were very fascinated in the world in which they lived. They were keen observers they notice, for instance, that rivers keep flowing. They believe that no man could step into the same river twice for two reasons. One, because when you step into the river the second time, 
it will no longer be the same river you stepped in because that river would now be downstream. The second reason was you wouldn't be the same person anyway. You would at least be a few seconds older. It had to be fantastic to be a Greek. In those days, you just found your philosopher, you got into your school of thought, and you had a marvelous time being a disciple of philosophy. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that this was all futile, not at all. Go and see the engineering of the ancient Greeks, and you'll see their fascination with geometry and architecture, and it was utterly superb. And so the whole idea of the teacher and the pupil were very common in those days. Now, out of that group came what we were known in the scriptures as the disciples of the Pharisees. Let me say that in some ways the Pharisees have got a bad rap. Now, of course, in many instances they absolutely deserved it. We all know the Pharisees could be hypocrites. We all know they were busy pulling sawdust out of their eyes while ignoring the planks in their own, or as the Lord Jesus humorously put it. And so we don't like the Pharisees very much. But if we are going to be fair to them, they did believe they, they were very much concerned about the Talmud and the Mishnah. And they were concerned that the people might unwittingly break the law. And so to make sure that they didn't unwittingly break the law, they made everything abundantly clear. They added to the law 365 prohibitions and 250 extra commandments. They prodded themselves on being the disciple of Moses. They believed that Moses had received from God the law and that this law was a matter of principle. They also believed that these principles needed amplification so that the people could understand exactly what it was that God told them to do. And so they have their rabbis. And they gathered people around them and they taught these prohibitions and they taught these commandments. And the people were re required to identify with them. But now as far as they were concerned, it was a matter of procedure. They got their disciples, but it was a discipleship of procedure. You do do this, and you don't do that. You do go here, but you don't go there. They built a following of people not so much on a basis of principle as much as a basis of a procedure. The Lord also speaks of the disciples of John the Baptist. But these were also different kind of disciples. John the Baptist just looked around him and didn't like what he saw. And so he started what we would call today a protest movement. He said things aren't just the way they should be, and there's going to have to be some changes around here. He was a wild man. He was outside the establishment. He preached in the wilderness because they wouldn't want him to preach in their churches. He didn't wear ecclesiastical garb. He wore sort of wild clothes and had a big, long beard all matted with honey. And he probably had locust legs stuck between his teeth. Plus, I imagine his hair was all over the place. And he almost certainly waved his arms around a lot. But because he was so passionate, the people gathered to him. And they became his disciples, but it was a discipleship of protest. They were against something. They were trying to turn something around. 
So there's no shortage of illustrations of discipleship at the time of Christ. The Greeks had disciples. They were the disciples of the Pharisees. They were the disciples of John the Baptist. But the key was there was a relationship between the leader, the master, or the rabbi, and to those who were listening to his teaching and responding to it. Now, into this situation comes Jesus, and he does something quite different from all the rest of them. He invites people to become his disciples, but the relationship is not a relationship of philosophy. It's not merely a relationship of principle. It's not a relationship of procedure or protest. He makes a very simple invitation to people, and it is this. Come unto me. He's a very simple command to people. He goes to them as they are mending their nets, if they are fishermen, or gathering their money if they are tax collectors. And he says, quite simply, follow me. And as he picks his first disciples, there's a very poignant little expression that we can slip over if we're not reading carefully. The Bible says he selected his disciples that they might be with him. Now we're starting to get the picture. The difference between the disciples of our Lord Jesus and the disciples of all these other people and movements was that it was a relationship with a person. Now we can't stress this enough because the absolute essence of Christian discipleship is relationship. That's exactly what happened when our Lord Jesus was speaking to these people. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And later on it will say, from that time on, many of his disciples turned back and would walk no more with him. What kind of disciples were they? Well, they were disciples who were certainly not just in the great crowd of the curious. They were engaged to the point of being convinced. But when it came down to being really convinced about the person of Christ who he really was, what he'd come to be, what he'd come to do, they weren't prepared to go any further. You know why? Because the Lord Jesus wants us to go from the curious to the convinced, and then from the convinced to the committed. From the curious to the convinced, and from the convinced to the committed. This is a very interesting thing. As many as his disciples turn and walk away from him, he will turn to his little group of the twelve and says to them, Are you going to leave too? Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, Don't go. Please don't leave me. He just asked them, Are you going to leave too? And Peter comes up with the most superlative statement. To whom shall we go? Where can we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. You are the one who is utterly unique. You are the one who can bring us to the Father. There is an, a uniqueness about you. And we want you to know there is no way under the sun that we can turn away from you and go anywhere else because we believe you are the one. Now that's commitment. And notice very carefully that I'm not saying that we measure our discipleship by the perfection of our lives. That is most certainly not what I am saying. 
There's a big difference between being blatantly disobedient and recognizing imperfection in life. And it's this. Very often you'll find people are being blatantly disobedient to the Lord. And when we of necessity point things out to them and encourage them to come to repentance and see God change their life, many of them will say, I had no idea. I didn't know I was being disobedient. I'm horrified. I'm mortified to realize that that was what I was doing. They then come to repentance and faith in God who wonderfully touches them and then transforms their life. They weren't perfect, but they were being disobedient. But when they realized they were being disobedient, they were prepared to change. On the other hand, you find people who are disobedient, and when it is pointed out to them that they are disobedient, instead of responding to it, they react against it. They think they can be disciples minus the obedience, and that is simply impossible. The measure of our discipleship is the reality of our relationship. And if we are related to the only Lord, the only God, then we can identify the reality of that relationship by the degree of our obedience. And so I call on you in the name of Christ and the authority of the word of God. If we really want to take seriously what he's talking about here, all we have to do is very simply look to our obedience. And so Jesus now asks all those who consider themselves disciples one simple question. Does this offend you? What is Jesus doing here? By asking this one question, he is going to separate the true disciples from the false ones. In biblical vernacular, it's removing the leaven so the whole batch isn't spoiled. And we've all heard it said that one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. If you're like my family, you have seen this. You go buy a nice big bag of apples so you can eat them for a healthy snack. But they just sit in the bowl until they go bad because you'd rather have a Pop-Tart. Some of you know this, but I'm going to tell the rest of you. A couple of weeks ago, I got up in the middle of the night and ate two Pop-Tarts. And yes, I could have had an apple, but who in the right mind is going to choose an apple over Pop-Tarts? But I was so ashamed of my appalling lack of self-control that I hid the box in the trash so Connie couldn't find it. I felt like I was hiding an empty bottle of vodka or something. But I do know for sure and from first-hand experience that one bad strawberry eventually will spoil all the others in its containers. When you go to the grocery store and you turn the container upside down and look at the bottom of the strawberries, there's just something about a strawberry deciding to grow a beard that inspires all the other berries around it to do the same thing. Before you know it, the delicious fruit you were looking forward to looks like a rabid baby rodent that would make you run screaming if you saw it coming towards you on a sidewalk. Anyway... Now that I have confessed my sins, let's get back to the text. We are told that they were offended by what he taught. The Greek word is scandalizo, from which we get our English word scandalized. 
They stumbled over the fact that he claimed to be coming down from heaven. They also stumbled over the fact that he had, they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be saved. But if they stumbled over these two matters, what would they do if they saw him ascend back into heaven? His implication seems to be, if you saw me go back into heaven, would that convince you of my heavenly origin? Look at verse 63 with me. It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. One study concludes in recent years, fewer Americans prayed, believed in God or took the Bible literally. They also didn't attend religious services, identify as religious or had confidence in religious institutions. But paradoxically, Americans have become slightly more likely to believe in the afterlife. The study suggests one plausible, though speculative, explanation is this is just another example of the rise of entitlement expecting special privileges without effort. Well, no surprise there, right? Tell a generation they are good, unrelated to their behavior or their performance, and they will think they should be able to live forever regardless of how they act or behave. But Jesus tells us the only way to go to heaven, we must eat and drink of him. How then do we eat his flesh and drink his blood? Through the word. The Lord says in verse 63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. If you remember our study from back in John chapter 1, we were told in verse 14, and the word became flesh. Here the Lord says the same thing. He that hears my word and believes on me that sent me has everlasting life. And although they were no doubt excited and inspired by Jesus' works, the authentic were converted and committed by Jesus' words. May this be a place corporately, and may we be people individually who understand that conversion and commitment are not based on signs and miracles, entertainment, hyper-hoopla, but only on the Word of God. I've heard people say, in essence, we don't want to study the Bible as much as we just want to move in the Spirit. Or, my personal favorite, the Spirit was moving so powerfully, the preacher didn't even get to preach. In some places this morning, that is considered the ultimate Sunday service. Yet I don't know how much more a Spirit-filled meeting can be in, in that in which the words of Jesus Christ are proclaimed. For the words He speaks are Spirit and they are life. Jesus then tells us in verse 64 that He knew that there were those among the crowd who really did not believe. Nothing much has changed, has it? Today, skepticism over any kind of absolute truth is at an all-time high. Let me read you a quote I found concerning this. But the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never be really a revolutionist. And the fact that he doubts everything gets in the way when he wants to denounce anything. 
Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. Now get this here. By rebelling against everything, he has lost the right to rebel against anything. We see that as a result of his hard sayings, many of the disciples turned to go home. I was once again struck by the fact that Jesus did not chase after them. He does not soften his message to make it more appealing. He doesn't send the disciples chasing after them to bring them back. He seems okay with the fact that his popularity has now plummeted. Because as verse 65 says, that unless God draws them and they respond in faith, they cannot be saved. Now, generally speaking, when people hear the preaching of the Word of God, they will respond in one of three ways. We find this in the parable of the sower. Some will scoff and react with just outright rejection. Such were the scribes and the Pharisees who responded to Jesus by consistently opposing his teachings and scorning his person. Now, some will respond with a temporary or a shallow faith. These false disciples are curiosity seekers who are just superficially attracted to Christ. But when he makes demands on them, or there is a cost to be paid for following him, they also disappear, desiring neither to let go of the world nor to deny themselves. In his first epistle, John further described them as those who went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were not really of us. Their numbers include men like Demas, Simon the Magician, and above all, Judas Iscariot. Finally, some will respond with true faith. This small nucleus of true disciples is a little flock to which the Father has gladly chosen to give the kingdom. As we finish up this morning, when we do respond in faith, God will begin the process of making us more and more like his son and less and less like this world. To illustrate how the beauty and majesty of God can cause our hearts to desire him more than we desire sin, J.D. Greer writes this. He writes, think of our relationship with Christ like a balloon. There are two ways to keep a balloon afloat. If you fill a balloon with your breath, the only way to keep it in the air is to continually smack it upward. That's how religion keeps you motivated. It repeatedly hits you. Stop doing this. Get busy with that. This is my life as a pastor. Some people come on Sunday so I can smack them about something. Be more generous, and they do that for a week. Forgive those who wronged you, and they do that. Greer writes, every week I smack them back into spiritual orbit. But there's another way and a better way to keep a balloon afloat. You simply fill it with helium. Then it floats on its own, no smacking required. Now, when we see the glory of God and the love that he has for us, that should be like the helium that keeps us soaring spiritually. And not only is that the best way to live on a personal level, it also has the added benefit of making us useful to those around us. So let's all make it our life's ambition to live in the Spirit 
so that we do not walk in the flesh. Or if you've never made that initial commitment, please see me after church. And Father, I've been on each side of that trying to uh, live my faith by the power of my own strength. It's like pushing a car around everywhere that I go. I just pray, Lord, you know all hearts represented in here. You know where everyone is or is not with you. I pray that today, this day, would be the day that we are changed and made more like your son. Ask in Christ's name. Amen.